Have you ever wondered what a prison psychologist actually works on with someone in jail and how effective that work can be? Their work can help us create a safer society and also helpfully, hopefully prevent that client from returning back to prison. So let's look at what that work entails. James Carroll is a psychologist with North Brisbane Psychologists and he joins you now. Good morning, James. Hi, Ashwin. How you doing? Good, thank you. What do you work on with people in jail as a prison psychologist? Uh, everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I've worked with uh, so many different things. We've worked on addiction. Uh, we've worked on sort of criminality and reducing recidivism. I've also worked on just, you know, current presentation of mental health in terms of, you know, if someone's at a heightened suicide risk or heightened risk to others, just helping them de-escalate. So there's a lot there, just like the, the normal population out there outside of prison, there's a full gamut of conditions that you would need to help with. Are there any themes that emerge that you notice, like a lot of people in jail have perhaps troubled childhoods or problems with addiction? Are there any themes that you notice that you can help with psychologically? 100%. There is a lot of uh, themes. I always thought of it as, you might have heard of the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, where all of the sort of mental health you know, disorders are listed and their criteria. And within the prison system, there's the pointy end of it. There's the, you know, there's a much higher representation of disorders that just aren't as present in the community. You, you know, things like personality disorders, schizophrenia, addiction. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's a, a lot of trauma. It's not every single person's story that's uh, currently inside, but there is a, a whole lot of trauma that has um, has been incurred on these people. Personality personality disorders can be quite hard to treat, or maybe you could summarise for me. Are some of those items in DSM manual resistant to treatment and some are easier to work on? Oh, 100%, yeah. Personality disorders are very, very resistant. They're, you know, part of the criteria is that, that it's a really pervasive sort of set of symptoms that's not just a situational thing where a stressor happens in their life and suddenly they're, you know, responding this way. It's, you know, much deeper and much more ingrained, which makes it harder to work with. So then how do you deal with that as a psychologist? You work with it very slowly. You, you bring a lot of patients forward um, and you always come with that unconditional positive regard. You want to sort of ensure that they feel supported because sometimes those personality disorders have come about because they haven't felt supported in their childhood or in their sort of young adulthood. Can you give us an example of a personality disorder that's relevant and how it manifests? Yeah, totally. Well, there's things like uh, borderline personality disorder, which can manifest, well, one, it could be, you know, from sort of really complex, prolonged, extensive trauma through someone's childhood and like sort of adolescence. Um, but there's also genetic factors that, you know, predispose someone to having that disorder. Things like antisocial personality disorder can also come about in that way. If you have borderline personality disorder, how do you view yourself and other people? You can often view yourself in a really, really negative light. Um, you can have sort of moments of just, you know, crippling depression and heightened anxiety and then they can co-occur. So you feel not only really hopeless, but also helpless at the same time. Um, you view other people in it can be this real switch between extreme idolization and then extreme devalue, uh, devaluation where you're just like, this person's leaving me, I need to push them away, I need to protect myself and it go, you go into this defense mechanism. Is that when criminal behavior can occur when you're viewing them in that least favorable way? Yeah, potentially, yeah. Um, it's more so the impulsivity that comes along with borderline personality disorder that can lead to sort of, you know, issues with police. Okay, so how do you control impulse? How, how do you work on impulse control? 
That, I mean, million dollar question, right? You know, addiction is a lot about impulse control. They're just millions of little impulses that you have to get through in terms of those cravings and urges to continue using or drinking or whatever substance. Um, but getting through them is this sort of, well, one, you want to sort of build up your distress tolerance. You want to increase your ability to sit with that um, uncomfortable feeling of, you know, I, oh, I need to do this thing or I, you know, I'm in a bad situation about myself or in the world. You want to sit with that and you also want to then process those things into something that's much more helpful. It doesn't have to be, you know, fake positivity. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be that, you know, I'm the best person in the world and I love myself. It can just be neutralizing those thoughts about like, okay, well, you know, maybe today's a bad day, but it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I had a former boss who had a problem with anger and he would sometimes say to me or to any of the staff, okay, just, I just need a moment. It's not you. It's me. And he would just take a moment to breathe and process whatever he was feeling and let it pass. And it's almost like he was trying to respond rather than react. Is that a big approach when you're controlling bad impulses? Yeah, definitely. It's the traffic light system. It's the red light. I'm going to stop. Um, orange light. I'm going to think about what my body wants me to do and what I really should be doing, you know, based on sort of consequences in terms of social impact or just impact on my mental health. And then green light then go after you've, you know, stopped to think about it. You're listening to psychologist uh, James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologist taking us into prison psychology. So you've mentioned a, a few things there. Personality disorders are one of the things you work on, but you have to work on them slowly as well. You also mentioned trauma. Can you tell us the, the role that that plays in criminality and how you treat that? Definitely. It's uh, a big part um, of some people's lives and it can really impact the way you see yourself, the way you feel that the world is working with you or against you. Because if you've had caregivers that often, you know, they might not give you the love, support, care that, you know, we require as little tiny humans, then we feel that the world is this harsh, brutal place where everyone's against us and we feel like we've got to, you know, do we might as well just keep going against the norm and, you know, it doesn't matter what people think. Do you see that on people's faces, mannerisms, just a natural background aggression that they carry around, a natural uh, hostility or fight or flight mode that they carry around with them? Yeah, totally. And it can, you know, really, I like to think of everyone, you know, all humans have this little battery where, you know, we're just like our phones where we start the day and we should be at 100%, you know, charging overnight. But when you're in fight and flight, you're using so much more energy than just your, you know, regular baseline, just getting through the day. And that fight and flight is trying to use that energy because it's trying to escape from something, you know, and evolutionarily speaking, it's, you know, we're trying to escape from a giant bear that's in front of us and threatening us and our family. But in modern day, especially with, you know, traumatic instances, they can change it. So it makes us feel like the bear is there in the room with us when it's actually not. Do you try to develop empathy in prisoners, working with animals or expressing themselves through art? How important is empathy and expression to the work that you do? Oh, so important. Um, there's a couple of prisons here in southeast Queensland that um, have some animal programs. I know the uh, Brisbane Women's, they do a lot of work with the um, RSPCA across the road down in Wacol, um, where a lot of prisoners can um, look after some cats and things like that that are waiting for homes. Um, the guys out at Borellan Correctional Centre, um, some of them get the privilege of looking after the guide dogs as they're sort of, you know, just little pups. And as this emotional and empathy, the, you know, skill set that's being built by that, animals are absolutely brilliant for that purpose. It sounds like they soften us in some ways or just open us up to a softer side. 
100%. The amount of people that, you know, um, I've worked with in prisons where they might have some, you know, feelings towards other other people and it might be not so nice, you know, yes. in terms of people that have wronged them in their lives, which is fair. Um, but when you, they talk about animals, they, you know, they go into this automatic empathy of just like, you know, this little, you know, fluff ball and it's, you know, this, they're so happy and you really resonate with that. It's a special power, special power that animals have. I watched a video, I think it was yesterday, about a serval. The serval was just looking at a phone cord. That's all it had to do and had 8 million views on Instagram. <laughs> that's how we are addicted to cats' faces. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so that's the power of animals. You are listening to ABC Radio Brisbane and Queens, and we are talking about prison psychology this morning. Is there a difference in working with a prisoner who's alone in the prison system versus one who's affiliated with a gang? Does the latter face more pressure to continue with their previous habits and conform with the gang? That's a brilliant question. I like that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, And, you know, it's not just people in gangs. It's also us as people in the community. We have pressure from our friends to, you know, there's obviously things where, you know, someone might say, hey, let's, you know, go do this today. And you're like, oh, I don't want to do that, but everyone else is doing it. Yeah. But there's also the more subtle ones, you know, body languages, you know, um, like little intergroup cultures where it's just an expectation. And if, you know, the people you're hanging out with and the people that you consider to be a family, like, you know, a lot of gangs do, um, it becomes this like, you know, I'm going to reject all of these things that the psychologist is saying and I'm going to, you know, stick to what I know. And it's a lot easier when we just go the path of least resistance. It's, you know, we go with what we know and we don't challenge things because it takes too much energy for our brain to challenge it. So it's just like, ah, I'll just do the other option. You know, sometimes when you're at school, the the cool drug and alcohol counsellor would come in and be rapping and he'd have shorts on in the back to front cap and he tries to like fit in with the kids. Um, is there anything similar with the prison psychologist where they try to connect with some of the toughest, roughest, darkest human personalities to sort of fit in and get their trust and respect? <laughs> well, it's funny, like when I was working, so I did about, I was working about three years in corrections um, across a bunch of different prisons in Queensland. And um, I honestly just tried to be myself. Mm. Um, when connecting with people, you know, I've, I've connected with, you know, some people that are on some pretty, uh, hefty charges in terms of, you know, murder, rape, torture, extortion, those sort of things. And, you know, you find out these little bits of information that you realize that there's just a normal human underneath those really severe, you know, offenses. Like you, you learn their favorite songs, you learn their favorite artists, you start talking about cars and I love cars and motorbikes and you start talking about, you know, big V8s and, you know, the, you know, cars that have let you down and you've been on the side of the road and when you're trying to get to work and it's, you know, coolants everywhere on the ground and they'd resonate with that and they love that. So honestly being genuine, Mm. um, I'm never going to pretend that I'm tough. I'm a, you know, I'm not built for that. I don't go to gym. Yeah. (laughs) But that seems like one of the most important needs to be authentic as a human being. And maybe a lot of these prisoners, if they've been faking it, they would like to see authenticity modeled because they need to become more authentic, don't they? Because maybe they've shut down parts of themselves in order to pursue that criminal lifestyle. Totally. And it also could be that shutdown as a coping strategy Yeah, where, you know, to sort of block out a lot of the really like traumatic potentially parts of their lives they've just pushed it away Mm. and pretend that it's not there and it's hard especially when there's you know stigmas in australia about guys shouldn't seek help for mental health and we should just all eat a cup of concrete yes and it's like that's that's not good for us well then let me ask you about that what's what gets in the way of your work being effective is it attitudes like that is it if it's a personality disorder that you said it was quite difficult to treat 
Is the prison environment not very conducive to psychological healing? Can you tell us about some things that get in the way of the work that you do in prison to try and improve people's psyches? Oh, totally. Yeah. Prison's a rough place. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, pretend that it's all amazing and whatnot um, because it is, a, you know, a very severe environment where there's a lot of things happening. Um, it's, <laughs> there's, I think one of the number one things for, you know, someone not getting something out of our like psych sessions is resistance. Um, if someone's really open to just getting some strategies, even if they're just small little strategies, that's a huge win. Um, but if someone's really resistant to it and, you know, like they're being forced to attend these sessions by a court order or, you know, um, just because we're checking in on them and it's more of a risk, um, assessment than an actual sort of treatment session. Well, if they're resistant to it, they're not going to get out of it. You know, you get out what you put in. And if like some of the clients that I've worked with in prisons, when they've been so open and so genuine and they, you know, they just want to learn these like helpful coping strategies to get a handle over like addictions or their mental health, man, they, they can get a lot out of it. Do you find people are less open to change the older they get? Yeah, I think there's some resistance um, and it's very natural. Like I'm going to be the same. I'm going to be, you know, like I'm 28 now and when I get into my 60s and 70s, I'm going to be resistant to things. It's just how our, you know, sort of our psyche works. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible to change. You know, I've worked with a lot of like older people in prisons and outside and it's again, that openness and that openness to the therapy starts to, you know, build as you build trust and they, they see you as this human rather than just this title of psychologist or shrink. You were telling me off air before that one of your psychologist friends has got long hair and tattoos and it's just themselves completely. So it sounds like it's really important in prison psychology not to be this uh, establishment figure that's totally remote from their lives. Definitely, yeah. It was very hard working in corrections when um, the, all the psychologists, we wear the same uniform as the officers. You wear the, you know, the blue short sleeve shirt, the big cargo pants, and then the big sort of like police grade boots. And it's hard for the guys and girls inside to see you as a psychologist in that, you know, immediate reaction. It's suddenly like, oh, blue officer. You've got this Pavlovian hurdle to walk in as soon as you walk in. Yeah, yeah. That's tricky. Um, It was actually my earrings. I've got sort of like stretcher-like earrings in my ears. Mm. And that was one of the things that really broke down a lot of sort of barriers because, you know, some of the guys were just like, oh, you know, I love your earrings. And it's like, yes, you know, (laughs) I'm not just the blue uniform. Yeah, okay. That's a graduation. All right, what, what is happening to the field? Is it changing? Are you starting to work with social workers more, collaborating with people's families? Is cultural work happening? How is prison psychology changing? Yeah, it's actually, it's changing for the better. There's been a lot of um, sort of changes on like a small and a big scale uh, within our system. We've got cultural liaison officers um, who we worked very closely with, which was fantastic for all our sort of Indigenous guys and girls. Um, Yeah, we worked really closely with them. Um, We worked a lot with sort of um, counsellors and sort of the educators when they're doing group sessions to try and help foster well, if they're working on this in the group sessions, then how can we sort of build in and sort of make these skills more useful? Mm. Um, And just when I sort of left in uh, mid-2021, we were doing some work with uh, occupational therapists as well. Um, One of our clients uh, had self-harmed quite a bit and that had affected his sort of, you know, use of pens and cutlery and whatnot. So we're getting OTs in to help him with, uh, you know, being able to use these normal daily tools again. You're listening to James Carroll, a psychologist with North Brisbane Psychologists, talking to us about 
well, the work of prison psychology. We do have to move on with the show because we've just got some a drummer coming in next. We've got uh, Catherine Ball, a couple of stories, because I'd love to talk to you a bit more. It's a fascinating field, but we are touching on Christmas with everyone. And as, as, as you were just about to come in, you mentioned Christmas can be a lonely pr- place for people in prison. Can you just touch on that a bit more? 100%, yeah. Prison is a very lonely place. You know, visiting hours aren't exactly the most friendly things around holiday times. Um, and when people hear about their family that are meeting up for, you know, Christmas Day and having a lunch and, you know, they're inside and it's just them, you know, the walls and then these people that they're forced into a unit with, it can be so isolating. Um, it's hard when the psychologists also don't work on, you know, Christmas Day because we are humans and we do need a day off as well. Um, but there's a lot of people in there that need a lot more support around these times. Father's Day, Christmas and um, Easter are generally pretty rough times. If you could suggest one change that would improve the performance or improve the work that you do or reduce the chance of recidivism, can you just suggest something that should be done differently in the prison psych system? What, just one? We've <laughs> <laughs> only got a few minutes. You know, whatever you'd like to say, what, what as in general needs to be done differently? Oh, look, I, th- I think, you know... Um, Having a bunch more psychs would be a brilliant thing because I think when people in the community hear about money being spent on prisons, they're like, you know, well, no, these people have done wrong by society. But when we look at the research, spending money on prisons in a really positive way, especially like a Scandinavian model way, um, where you're focusing on people's mental health, you're trying to, you know, build their skills, their recidivism is so much lower. They're much less likely to go back to prison once they get out. And that's, that's a great thing. People can change. You know, these people aren't their big sort of um, charges. That's not their identity. It's something that is a part of their past, but it shouldn't be part of their future. That's a great way to end. And you have also brought in a Christmas song for us to end the segment on. Can you tell us about what you've brought in? Yeah, uh, it's John Lennon's The War Is Over. And it reminds me of, um, so when I first moved out of home, um, out of my parents' home, uh, we would meet up for, you know, sort of Christmas lunch at their place. And my dad would, you know, go to put on his uh, his playlist. And, you know, the first couple of songs would be John Lennon, The War Is Over, Paul Kelly's How To Make Gravy. And it just really set, you know, the theme for the day. It wasn't those sort of over-repeated Christmas carols. It was songs with much more meaning and much more, you know, sort of relation to the everyday person. You are listening to James Carroll there. And this is The War Is Over. James, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much, Ashwin.